Chapter forty six of Far from the Madding Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter forty six. The Gargoyle. Its doings. The tower of Weatherbury Church was a square erection of fourteenth-century date, having two stone gargoyles on each of the four faces of its parapet. Of these eight carved protuberances, only two at this time continued to serve the purpose of their erection, that of spouting water from the lead roof within. One mouth in each front had been closed by bygone churchwardens as superfluous, and two others were broken away and choked, a matter not of much consequence to the well-being of the tower for the two mouths which still remained open and active were gaping enough to do all the work. It has been sometimes argued that there is no truer criterion of the vitality of any given art period than the power of the master spirits of that time in grotesque, and certainly in the instance of Gothic art there is no disputing the proposition. Weatherbury Tower was a somewhat early instance of the use of an ornamental parapet in parish as distinct from cathedral churches and the gargoyles, which are the necessary correlatives of a parapet, were exceptionally prominent, of the boldest cut that the hand could shape, and of the most original design that a human brain could conceive. There was, so to speak, that symmetry in their distortion, which is less the characteristic of British than continental grotesques of the period. All the eight were different from each other. A beholder was convinced that nothing on earth could be more hideous than those he saw on the north side until he went around to the south. Of the two on this latter face, only that at the southeastern corner concerns the story. It was too human to be called like a dragon, too impish to be like a man, too animal to be like a fiend, and not enough like a bird to be called a griffin. This horrible stone entity was fashioned as if covered with a wrinkled hide. It had short, erect ears, eyes starting from their sockets, and its fingers and hands were seizing the corners of its mouth, which they thus seemed to pull open to give free passage to the water it vomited. The lower row of teeth was quite washed away, though the upper still remained. Here and thus, jutting a couple of feet from the wall against which its feet rested as a support, the creature had for four hundred years laughed at the surrounding landscape, voicelessly in dry weather, and in wet, with a gurgling and snorting sound. Troy slept on in the porch, and the rain increased outside. Presently the gargoyle spat. In due time a small stream began to trickle through the seventy feet of aerial space between its mouth and the ground, which the water-drops smote like duck-shot in their accelerated velocity. The stream thickened in substance and increased in power, gradually spouting further and yet further from the side of the tower. When the rain fell in a steady and ceaseless torrent, the stream dashed downwards in volumes. We follow its course to the ground at this point of time. The end of the liquid parabola has come forward from the wall, has advanced over the plinth mouldings, over a heap of stones, over the marble border, into the midst of Fanny Robin's grave. The force of the stream had, until very lately, been received upon some loose stones spread thereabout, which had acted as a shield to the soil under the onset. These, during the summer months, had been cleared from the ground, and there was now nothing to resist the downfall but the bare earth. For several years the stream had not spouted so far from the tower as it was doing on this night, and such a contingency had been overlooked. 
Sometimes this obscure corner received no inhabitant for the space of two or three years, and then it was usually but a pauper, a poacher, or some sinner of undignified sins. The persistent torrent from the gargoyle's jaws directed all its vengeance into the grave. The rich, tawny mould was stirred into motion and boiled like chocolate. The water accumulated and washed deeper down, and the roar of the pool thus formed spread into the night as the head and chief among other noises of the kind created by the deluging rain. The flowers so carefully planted by Fanny's repentant lover began to move and writhe in their bed. The winter violets turned slowly upside down and became a mere mat of mud. Soon the snowdrops and other bulbs danced in the boiling mass like ingredients in a cauldron. Plants of the tufted species were loosened, rose to the surface, and floated off. Troy did not awake from his comfortless sleep till it was broad day. Not having been in bed for two nights, his shoulders felt stiff, his feet tender, and his head heavy. He remembered his position, arose, shivered, took the spade, and again went out. The rain had quite ceased, and the sun was shining through the green, brown, and yellow leaves now sparkling and varnished by the raindrops to the brightness of similar effects in the landscapes of Risedale and Hobema, and full of all those infinite beauties that arise from the union of water and colour with high lights. The air was rendered so transparent by the heavy fall of rain that the autumn hues of the middle distance were as rich as those near at hand, and the remote fields, intercepted by the angle of the tower, appeared in the same plane as the tower itself. He entered the gravel path which would take him behind the tower. The path, instead of being stony as it had been the night before, was browned over with a thin coating of mud. At one place in the path he saw a tuft of stringy roots, washed white and clean as a bundle of tendons. He picked it up. Surely it could not be one of the primroses he had planted. He saw a bulb, another, and another as he advanced. Beyond doubt they were crocuses. With a face of perplexed dismay, Troy turned the corner and then beheld the wreck the stream had made. The pool upon the grave had soaked away into the ground, and in its place was a hollow. The disturbed earth was washed over the grass and pathway in the guise of the brown mud he had already seen, and it spotted the marble tombstone with the same stains. Nearly all the flowers were washed clean out of the ground, and they lay roots upward on the spots whither they had been splashed by the stream. Troy's brow became heavily contracted. He set his teeth closely, and his compressed lips moved as those of one in great pain. This singular accident, by a strange confluence of emotions in him, was felt as the sharpest sting of all. Troy's face was very expressive and any observer who had seen him now would hardly have believed him to be a man who had laughed and sung and poured love-trifles into a woman's ear. To curse his miserable lot was at first his impulse, but even that lowest stage of rebellion needed an activity whose absence was necessarily antecedent to the existence of the morbid misery which wrung him. The sight, coming as it did, superimposed upon the other dark scenery of the previous days, formed a sort of climax to the whole panorama, and it was more than he could endure. Sanguine by nature, Troy had a power of eluding grief by simply adjourning it. He could put off the consideration of any particular spectre till the matter had become old and softened by time. The planting of flowers on Fanny's grave had been perhaps but a species of illusion of the primary grief 
and now it was as if his intention had been known and circumvented. Almost for the first time in his life, Troy, as he stood by this dismantled grave, wished himself another man. It is seldom that a person with much animal spirit does not feel that the fact of his life being his own is the one qualification which singles it out as a more hopeful life than that of others who may actually resemble him in every particular. Troy had felt, in his transient way, hundreds of times, that he could not envy other people their condition, because the possession of that condition would have necessitated a different personality, when he desired no other than his own. He had not minded the peculiarities of his birth, the vicissitudes of his life, the meteor-like uncertainty of all that related to him, because these appertained to the hero of his story, without whom there would have been no story at all for him, and it seemed to be only in the nature of things that matters would right themselves at some proper date and wind up well. This very morning the illusion completed its disappearance, and, as it were, all of a sudden Troy hated himself. The suddenness was probably more apparent than real. A coral reef which just comes short of the ocean's surface is no more to the horizon than if it had never been begun, and the mere finishing stroke is what often appears to create an event which has long been potentially an accomplished thing. He stood and meditated, a miserable man. Whither should he go? He that is accursed, let him be accursed still, was a pitiless anathema written in this spoilated effort of his newborn solicitousness. A man who has spent his primal strength in journeying in one direction has not much spirit left for reversing his course. Troy had, since yesterday, faintly reversed his, but the merest opposition had disheartened him. To turn about would have been hard enough under the greatest providential encouragement, but to find that Providence, far from helping him into a new course, or showing any wish that he might adopt one, actually jeered his first trembling and critical attempt in that kind, was more than nature could bear. He slowly withdrew from the grave. He did not attempt to fill up the hole, replace the flowers, or do anything at all. He simply threw up his cards and forswore his game for that time and always. Going out of the churchyard silently and unobserved, none of the villagers having yet risen, he passed down some fields at the back, and emerged just as secretly upon the high road. Shortly afterwards he had gone from the village. Meanwhile Bathsheba remained a voluntary prisoner in the attic. The door was kept locked, except during the entries and exits of Liddy, for whom a bed had been arranged in a small adjoining room. The light of Troy's lantern in the churchyard was noticed about ten o'clock by the maid-servant, who casually glanced from the window in that direction whilst taking her supper, and she called Bathsheba's attention to it. They looked curiously at the phenomenon for a time, until Liddy was sent to bed. Bathsheba did not sleep very heavily that night. When her attendant was unconscious and softly breathing in the next room, the mistress of the house was still looking out of the window at the faint gleam spreading from among the trees, not in a steady shine, but blinking like a revolving coast-light, though this appearance failed to suggest to her that a person was passing and repassing in front of it. Bathsheba sat here till it began to rain, and the light vanished, when she withdrew to lie restlessly in her bed, and re-enact in a worn mind the lurid scene of yesternight. Almost before the first faint sign of dawn appeared, she arose again, and opened the window to obtain a full breathing of the new morning air. The panes being now wet with trembling tears left by the night rain, each one rounded with a pale lustre caught from primrose-hued slashes through a cloud low down in the awakening sky. 
From the trees came the sound of a steady dripping upon the drifted leaves underneath them, and from the direction of the church she could hear another noise, peculiar and not intermittent like the rest, the pearl of water falling into a pool. Liddy knocked at eight o'clock, and Bathsheba unlocked the door. "'What a heavy rain we had in the night, ma'am,' said Liddy, when her inquiries about breakfast had been made. "'Yes, very heavy. Did you hear the strange noise from the churchyard?' I heard one strange noise. I've been thinking it must have been the water from the tower-spouts. Well, that's what the shepherd was saying, ma'am. He's now gone on to sea. Oh, Gabriel has been here this morning. Only just looked in in passing, quite in his old way, which I thought he had left off lately. But the tower-spouts used to spatter on the stones, and we were puzzled, for this was like the boiling of a pot. Not being able to read, think, or work, Bathsheba asked Liddy to stay and breakfast with her. The tongue of the more childish woman still ran upon recent events. "'Are you going across to the church, ma'am?' she asked. "'Not that I know of,' said Bathsheba. "'I thought you might like to go and see where they have put Fanny. The trees hide the place from your window.' Bathsheba had all sorts of dreads about meeting her husband. "'Has Mr. Troy been in to-night?' she said. "'No, ma'am, I think he's gone to Budmouth.' Budmouth. The sound of the word carried with it a much diminished perspective of him and his deeds. There were thirteen miles' interval betwixt them now. She hated questioning Liddy about her husband's movements, and indeed had hitherto sedulously avoided doing so, but now all the house knew that there had been some dreadful disagreement between them, and it was futile to attempt disguise. Bathsheba had reached a stage at which people ceased to have any appreciative regard for public opinion. "'What makes you think he has gone there?' she said. "'Laban Tall saw him on the Budmouth Road this morning before breakfast.' Bathsheba was momentarily relieved of that wayward heaviness of the past twenty-four hours, which had quenched the vitality of youth in her, without substituting the philosophy of maturer years, and she resolved to go out and walk a little way. So, when breakfast was over, she put on her bonnet, and took a direction towards the church. It was nine o'clock, and the men, having returned to work again from their first meal, she was not likely to meet any of them in the road. Knowing that Fanny had been laid in the reprobate's quarter of the graveyard, called in the parish behind church, which was invisible from the road, it was impossible to resist the impulse to enter and look upon a spot which, from nameless feelings, she had at the same time dreaded to see. She had been unable to overcome an impression that some connection existed between her rival and the light through the trees. Bathsheba skirted the buttress, and beheld the hole and the tomb, its delicately veined surface splashed and stained, just as Troy had seen it and left it two hours earlier. On the other side of the scene stood Gabriel. His eyes, too, were fixed on the tomb, and her arrival having been noiseless, she had not as yet attracted his attention. Bathsheba did not at once perceive that the grand tomb and the disturbed grave were Fanny's, and she looked on both sides and around for some humbler mound, earthed up and clodded in the usual way. Then her eye followed Oakes, and she read the words with which the inscription opened, Erected by Francis Troy, in beloved memory of Fanny Robin. Oak saw her, and his first act was to gaze inquiringly and learn how she received this knowledge of the authorship of the work, which to himself had caused considerable astonishment. But such discoveries did not much affect her now. 
Emotional convulsions seemed to have become the commonplaces of her history, and she bade him good morning, and asked him to fill in the hole with the spade which was standing by. Whilst Oak was doing as she desired, Bathsheba collected the flowers, and began planting them with that sympathetic manipulation of roots and leaves which is so conspicuous in a woman's gardening, and which flowers seem to understand and thrive upon. She requested Oak to get the churchwardens to turn the lead-work at the mouth of the gargoyle that hung gaping down upon them, that by this means the stream might be directed sideways, and a repetition of the accident prevented. Finally, with the superfluous magnanimity of a woman whose narrower instincts have brought down bitterness upon her instead of love, she wiped the mud from the tomb, as if she rather liked its words than otherwise, and went again home. End of chapter 46